Hello and welcome to another episode of The Neutrinos Are Mutating, the science and film podcast from Manchester Metropolitan University, where we explore the science fact in science fiction. I'm Sam Illingworth. And I'm James Redford. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at the 2003 film The Core, directed by John Amiel and brought to us by Paramount Pictures. The core of the Earth has stopped spinning. The spinning core protects us from cosmic radiation. Without it, radiation will create superstorms. Microwaves will literally cook our planet. How could this have happened? It was Project Destiny. We killed the planet. So, how do we fix it? We can't. The core is the size of Mars. You're talking about jump-starting a planet. What if we could? James, the core. It's, it's an interesting film. Would you, would you like to give us a brief, a brief synopsis? <laughs> So, well, it's actually quite... So I was thinking about this earlier on. It's actually quite hard because there are so many elements to this <laughs> film. There's so many particularly scientific things. But essentially, uh, it's current day, well, it's 2003, I think, is, is when it's set. Um, and Dr. Josh Keyes, uh, played by Aaron Eckhart, um, and his team of scientists who just, like, walk around, like, turn computers on and, like, <laughs> don't, don't really do too much um, in terms of actual science by the looks of it. But anyway, they notice that there's, there's some kind of instability in the Earth's magnetic field. Um, and then all these kinds of disasters start to happen. So you get people with pacemakers just drop dead. Uh, all these, like, apocalyptic birds, like... like missile out of the sky into start crashing into windows and things and cause absolute chaos and devastation uh, and obviously people pick this up um well, actually i think really only the u.s government start to ask only questions. the u.s government pick this up uh, yeah so then like obviously the u.s government run to all these academics and like help us we need to try and uh, restart the cause earth because it turns out that it's the cause earth is stopping is slowing down spinning and it's going to stop and therefore um, we're going to lose the magnetic field and this you know, cascades into loads of problems. So essentially this uh, group of scientists um, build a ship made of unobtainium, which is uh, obviously you may have never heard that before. That's it is, un- unobtainium. Yeah, it is completely fictional. Um, <laughs> and the, the useful feature of this completely fictional material is that uh, with increased pressure in around it, it gets stronger. So they use this material to build a ship which is capable of drilling to the core of the earth uh, <laughs> with some kind of like massive laser at the front which like just shoots through anything that's in front of it. And then obviously because as, as, as it's getting deeper into the core, it's getting, uh, there's a lot more uh, pressure so it's getting stronger. So it's like this like incredible vehicle to be in. It's really long and like, Looks a bit like a spaceship, but anyway, it's called Vigil, um, and off they go. Then they're off. They go on a little travel to the center of the Earth, um, and they are they they get into the center. They they get into the kind of the man. Is it the mantle? The the, no, the mantle. They get into the very center of the core, basically. Yeah, but they they go in via the Mariner's Trench. Is that what it's yeah. called? They get there, and obviously all is good. Um, set off some nukes and yeah, then couple of couple of noble sacrifices on the way. Yeah, obviously. I mean, let, let's be frank from the upstart. It is a ridiculous film, isn't it? This idea of just using we can't think of a thing that would make the ship indestructible, so let's just call it unobtainium. Yeah. Oh yeah. But unobtainium does have precedence. It was also used in Avatar. Yeah, it was indeed. And it seems to be a, a recurring theme that materials if there's a problem that can't be solved just make a material (laughs) up so in the ring world novels um there there is scrice 
which is an entirely frictionless material. In H.G. Wells' first men in the moon, they invent caverite, which is a material with anti-gravitational properties. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I just like to be clear that moon is in no way, shape or form um, along any of the calibre of H.G. Wells' offerings. You can find out more as well as previous episodes at tnampodcast.com. So we're joined in the studio now by Professor Stephen Hoon, who is a Professor of Applied Science here at Manchester Metropolitan University. Hi, Steve. Hello. Steve, first question, what, what is applied science? <laughs> yeah, I was asked that. I was asked if it was a bit <laughs> like... Uh, the uh, the Vorsprung durch type of uh, okay. <laughs> applied technology. It it really was, um, I suppose, a, a, a chair which came out of the diversity of my background. Really, so how do I describe myself? Um, and uh, decided perhaps that uh, the application of science from physics all the way through was perhaps perhaps the way to way to go. So for me, um, applied science is very much the application of mathematics and physics to a variety of areas, disciplines that perhaps haven't traditionally used that philosophical approach. And you, you like. do have a very varied research background. So can you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that you're working on at the moment, Steve? Yeah, at the moment I'm working on quite a lot of uh, material to do with uh, soils and sediments. Um, some, of the, some of the soils are actually interesting soils that have a, a biophysical component. So I'm looking at the way that bacteria are actually living in the thin layer of the dryland soils, particularly the Kalahari, places like that. And that's very far removed from some of the work that you did on magnetic physics and the magnetosphere as well. Is that So was that much earlier on in your career? Yes, yeah, so I, st I started off in a solid-state physics group and... They were particularly interested in magnetic colloids. Um, then it was before silicon came on big style for energy um, energy generation and uh, as, as an electronic material. And there was an interest in generating energy in space from magnetohydrodynamics, which is where you get a, a metal to move. In a, in a magnetic field and generate current directly from it from it looking hmm. we, we did a bit of research obviously in your in your research career looking hmm. at your papers as well and mm -hmm. what was really interesting was the last paper that you published on uh, magnetics and that particular area of research was in 2003 which is the same year that the core came out so we wondered whether the <laughs> the science of the core was so abominable that it put you off this area of science for the rest of your life? Or was it just no, a happy coincidence? No, a happy coincidence. <laughs> uh, I, I hadn't looked at the core until, until it was suggested that I should in order, in order to, uh, to give us some fuel for this particular interview. <laughs> so in, in, terms, in terms of the film, is that I, James and I have touched on this briefly, the science in it is interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, consistently interesting, shall we say? What What is the greatest source of annoyance about the science <laughs> in the film for you, Steve? I think I think it's really uh, one of, of principle. And I, as I as I was walking uh, as I was walking through the streets here, I thought, how how could I summarise it? And it's not that 
there are areas of science in this film which are in principle untrue it's that the magnitudes that are applied <laughs> to them that make them completely unfeasible so i thought how could i explain this i thought well imagine that you saw a film where an ant took hold of a of a strand of a of a uh, a spider's web and started dragging through the streets perhaps even on ice an articulated lorry uh, whilst all the components of that are quite acceptable, <laughs> the outcome is not. <laughs> Only the ant could not pull that, that, that lorry. So I found the film very much like this. There were lots of interesting bits of science in there, but they were upscaled or downscaled or inappropriately applied. Um, and this is one of my, uh, one of my, my teaching and, and lecturing and, and research briefs really often is, is, to get, is to get the order of magnitude right first and then you, you can understand something in principle. So, so, so the annoyance was continuous, but I actually laughed an awful lot. It was, I think I hired the film for £3.50 from our, our, um, our provider, downloaded it, and, and I laughed most of the way through. So actually, actually it, was, it was a really Laughed good with? Laughed at. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's, quite, it's quite a fun film to watch. Yeah. I was by myself. I waited until my wife had gone out. And I just laughed at the film. I thought it was really quite amusing all the way through. But <laughs> I think it has, this, it has this element of taking itself quite seriously as well, doesn't it? Does. it? Or, I mean, it f for me, is, is, there, <laughs> is there anything then that the film gets right? <laughs> at all. We live uh, on Earth. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, I think it keeps getting bits right, so that your, my my interest was maintained. I, I mean, for example, the, uh, the 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 opening sort of scenes where people are collapsing. If there was an electromagnetic pulse of sufficient amplitude, yes, people with pacemakers would have a problem. But um, the <laughs> the size of a magnetic field change necessary to cause uh, people to collapse with pacemakers is of the order. Of, of more than one tesla per second. And to put that in context, the Earth's magnetic field is about 60 micro tesla. So we're, <laughs> we're already a, a million times wrong on that one. <laughs> um, and, and then, of course, what an Earth, literally, or in Earth, what on Earth, what in Earth, could possibly cause the Earth's magnetic field to pulse in such a short time anyway mm. so it, it starts unraveling as soon as you start thinking about it and this is a problem i had i'd start thinking about the the absurdity of many of the bits and i'd miss the next line yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i think what, what what interests me as well is this concept that it says that the earth's gonna you know effectively gonna stop spinning mm -hmm. and this is going to stop the production of the earth's magnetic field which mm -hmm. is going to bring this radiation to hurt everybody but it doesn't actually concentrate on any of the other aspects that would happen if the earth was to stop spinning which are magnified, yes, and it yes, just kind of yes, assumes yes, that yes, everything else would yes, be completely normal. Yes, yes, indeed, indeed. Well, I presume that they were just suggesting that the core was going to stop spinning, or the outer core was going to stop spinning. But then the, uh, I, I could think of no mechanism by which that should <laughs> could happen uh, abruptly, because again, as, as Newton uh, knew in the 1600s, you know, action and reaction are required. So, if, so for something to oppose uh, or dissipate so much kinetic and thermal energy in a short period of time would be some uh, am amazing uh, and completely un unthought of phenomena. Yeah, I don't think the second law of thermodynamics was close to the uh, producer's head when they were, no, when no, they were doing this film. Am I right in thinking that they thought this happened to Mars at one point, that Mars had some kind of fluid core? 
um, and then it just stopped. Well, yeah, but I think it, the, the the problem there is just stopped. Yeah, it it just decayed stopped away. Yeah, yeah. And and this is another another reason why um, time scale is so important. Uh, I, I often say to students, um, as far as you're concerned, perhaps earthquakes occur infrequently, maybe every ten or a hundred years, but on a geological time scale, the Earth is a ringing bell. Yeah, it's constantly in seismic activity. Mm. And the, 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 the mark space ratio, if you like, the event to no event spacing on a human scale is significant, but, but on a geological scale it's not. And, and then if you go from a geological scale to an astronomical scale, then the time lengths get even bigger. And it's this, in, in physics we, we talk about renormalization, and, and this is where you effectively are constantly dividing by a larger number to bring things back into a tractable and understandable form. And, and that for me is the wonderful power of, of maths in science, where especially in powers of 10, I just think in powers of 10, you, 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 can, you can suddenly divide, you can divide by a million or a billion or whatever you want, or a, a trillion, whatever, whatever number powers of 10 you want. And, and, the, and you're then just thinking in terms of numbers between one and 10 again. Yeah. And, and that lets you um, grapple with enormous times, uh, well, very short times, uh, very small length scales, and so on and so forth. So, 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 so you're absolutely right. The, the, uh, the, the magnetic core in Mars did, did die away. But over what time scale? I mean, it might, I don't know. It might have been a billion years. It certainly wasn't one second. Days. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think it's... It's really interesting you pick up this idea of scale and, you know, I've heard you talk before as well about the importance of f numerical figures rather than adjectives and, you know, using this to back up statistics so that you're talking about quantifiable measurements rather yeah. than just ideas, which is exactly what this, fi yeah. this, this film does. I mean, and one example that, that Devin very kindly noted down was that, you know, they, they, they make a big deal, don't they, of getting to the bottom of the Mariner Trench. Yes. But if we actually look at the numbers that are involved, the Mariner Trench is 11 kilometres in depth. The oceanic crust is seven kilometres, yeah. but the mantle is 2,900 kilometres and the liquid core, which takes us halfway, is 2,600 kilometres. So really, they make such a big deal of getting to the Mariner Trench. To save like a kilometre. To save, <laughs> it, it, to yeah. save like yeah, yeah. one, Absolutely. like 0.1%. It Absolutely. just doesn't really make no. any any sense at all, does no. it? And that's no. just an example no. of, if you actually look at some of the figures, yes. they've just completely run with it. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. So, so you're, you're, you're lulled into this sense of plausibility because, yes, it would make eminent sense to go through the thinnest part that you know of. Uh, but as you say, it's just... Uh, <laughs> it just makes absolutely no difference. Hair's breath. Yeah, absolutely. Let me, let me say... Uh, let, me, let me speak speak slightly positively of the film. In fact, <laughs> it got me thinking about something. <laughs> uh, that was carbon in the, in the, in the, uh, in, in the outer core. And I, when I first thought, great crystals of great diamond, crystal carbon. What, what's all this carbon doing down there? <laughs> That's ridiculous. You know, carbon, carbon basically on Earth is very much locked into the, uh, into the biological cycle. And I thought, oh, no, of course, there's, there are the carbonate rocks, aren't there? The subduction of rocks and uh, where the, where the uh, perhaps a, 
a large piece of or a large mountain range of uh, of, uh, of carbonate rock might will get subducted. And yes, we know that uh, certain volcanoes are rich in, in in CO2 because of that, and so on and so forth. Um, and I thought, well, maybe you can get quite a bit of carbon in the in in the uh, in the earth deep down. And so then I discovered a a, a group that had actually been looking at the uh, the role of um, of carbon in 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 the in, in the mantle and mm -hmm. uh, yes indeed there, you 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 can get carbon down there um, but the likelihood of it being enormous great uh, <laughs> pointy <laughs> crystals <laughs> in pure carbon form is 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 remote to say to say the least yes I mean those of us wanting <laughs> to make a fortune by drilling down a few thousand <laughs> kilometers to pick out diamonds the size of a, we'll be a car will be yeah. disappointed by yeah. that so yeah all right. Basically, we just need to consider scale, which is which is yes. good, which is good to know, and at, at least it's good fun. It's good fun. I, I mean, the, the other issues I had were, were with with the size of the nuclear bombs that they were going to lead, and would that do anything? And that's just going to be a compressional wave, you know. And how on earth is that going to? What's that going to get hold of? You know, is is there some lump sticking out that's suddenly magically <laughs> going to pick this up? And anyway, if it does start to turn, it'll drag. But the whole thing becomes. The more you think about that that side, but the more ridiculous it becomes. Um, and and again, the speeds of things. You know, you, you mentioned earlier the the enormous depths that, that are involved here. And, and if you start to work out the speeds at which they're travelling through the earth, and and the speeds at which sound waves are apparently moving as well, that's um, that, 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 that's 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 uh, quite quite crazy. And uh, and early on, I thought they've they've really managed to crack the communication um, issue of, of from from the surface of the earth through the sea through rock. <laughs> Through, through liquid, highly conductive uh, material. You know, this this is worth more than the Nobel Prize solving this one. Conducted effortlessly through any medium. Absolutely. It would, it would what, what are they using? They're certainly not using the electromagnetic spectrum, as I understand. <laughs> All right, fantastic. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Steve. This podcast is supported by Digital Innovation and the Faculty of Science and Engineering at Manchester Metropolitan University. We heard from Steve there about just how ridiculous the film is, how you know it takes everything to the nth degree. Yeah, and I think that's, that's a very good way of summing it up. It seems to just you know. Just it has an idea and it's really tried to run with and it. And we've talked before about the the suspension of disbelief. And, you know, it is a fiction film. It's a science fiction film. But normally most films have one idea that they take to a little extreme and then they run with it. But everything else that surrounds it is to has some semblance of reality in it. So yeah. you, can, you can go along with it. But this, just everything, everything is just thrown out of the window. I mean, so I, I read an interview with the director and he basically said he doesn't care. He, he never set it out to be scientifically accurate. Um, but there was, uh, on the same kind of webpage I was on, there was a, a stu study, I say study, there was some people had asked some scientists what the, the worst film scientifically was and the core was the one that got the most answers. So it's... Uh, it's not surprising, is it? But there, there is, Devin's done some research for us and there is, there is actually one element in it that is true, and in the film, there's um, there's a there's a use, isn't there, of the the phone freaking, mm -hmm. in which they 
play a high-pitched number and then allegedly it gives you free dialing course for life. More stereotypically hacker friends. This, this did actually happen. So the first mention of the word hacker in its modern context was in a 1963 MIT student newspaper article about students who had actually hacked the telephone system. So basically some black, this, this, five, this blind five-year-old in Virginia was playing with phones in the 1950s and he learned that he could dial numbers by rapidly clicking the phone switch. So at seven, he then he then realised that whistling at precisely two thousand six hundred hertz, he had perfect pitch, um, created the possibility of calling long distance at no charge. So basically, the reason for this is that telephones would communicate with one another through frequencies that were sent over the same line that people used to talk. So what do you? I, I have I have to ask James: good film, bad film, good science, bad science. Um, I enjoyed the film. To be honest, P- out of pure comedy, you know, I mean, as a comedy film, I think it, it like, definitely laughing, laughing at definitely, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, it is science fiction, as we say. So I think, yeah, I think it's an enjoyable film. I think if you don't take it too seriously, um, you know, you're in it for the right reasons, and you don't believe that we need an unobtainium ship to drill to the center of the the earth. Yeah, I think it's a good good movie. So a terrible science. Oh yeah, I mean, there's no there's no two ways about that. But the terribleness is to such a degree that it actually makes it an enjoyable film. Yeah, I think it gets so bad that it actually turns out to be very good, very positive. And I'm sure that's exactly what the director yeah, I'm sure was, that's exactly what he wanted. Was, was hoping for. And just, just to note that there's a, there's a great Radiolab um, episode called Long Distance where you can find out a bit more about the phone freaking uh, phenomenon, the, the one element of science that is correct in this film. Yeah, I'm going to have to check that out. Thank you very much for listening. I've been Sam Illingworth. And I'm James Redfern. Goodbye. Goodbye.